Robert Siegel, welcome to the Atlantic Interview. Thank you, Jeff. I know this is the big this is the big time. <laughs> I'm I finally made so it. So I don't want you to be nervous. Actually, the truth is I'm a little bit nervous. I've never I've never gone I've never done this with you in this direction. We've done it in the other direction. You've I've done it in the other direction, yeah. which is nerve wracking in itself. But we're very pleased that you chose to spend part of your okay. first day of retirement uh, with us. Robert Siegel, as all of you know, is host for I think it was four score and seven years. Uh, <laughs> Almost, yeah. Of all things considered, uh, joined NPR in eighteen oh. Four, but I wanted to ask you um, why why retire now? And there's there's two two parts to that question. One is we happen to be in an extraordinary political moment. Yeah, that's uh, fun for you to cover as a journalist. At least it's fun. Maybe as a citizen, it's fraught. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second is, and this is going to sound strange, but you still have your voice. What what is it that 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 made you think you should retire? Well, I I decided to do this about three and a half years ago. Uh, when um, I figured that I would be, originally it was supposed to happen at the end of June of last year, I would turn 70, and that seemed about right to me uh, as a time for change. Uh, I um, I could do it longer, uh, but at some point I would start doing it worse. I don't know when that would happen. Uh, I know that it's harder for me. I, I'm not suffering from any ailments or the like, but it's harder for me to to remember names today than it was 10, 20 years ago. Uh, and I've, I'm still fine. I can do it. But but I, I don't want to reach a point where I have to stop doing it because I can't. And I feel like I'm doing it when whatever I do the rest of my life, I'm still reasonably uh, 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 young at 70 and uh, uh, robust and, and ready to do something else rather than, than feel that I couldn't do anything else. Have you seen people stay in their careers in journalism or in radio specifically too long? Um, I think so. I think so. What is I, this? Don't, I don't want to, you know, go into I'm not asking you to name but, uh, names. But no, I, but I mean, you know, you don't want to reach a point where where your editor is finding that you're mentioning the wrong president all the time or that you're, you know, that you're that you're getting dates wrong, uh, you know, basic dates. You've so. said that uh, that that in politics you've stayed current, but you feel yeah. a little bit as if the culture is escaping yeah. you. Yeah, the popular Talked culture is. Uh, uh, I, I I don't quite understand the aesthetic of a lot of popular music today, or uh, um, s- also I think taste in movies is probably different from what from what mine uh, is a mass taste. And um, I work with a ter- I, I worked. I have to remember to put this in the past tense. Mm-hmm. I would take part in a meeting with lots of people who are half my age or, or younger than that. And uh, they were all uh, they were all hooked into social media in similar ways and in ways that I found uninteresting and and unnecessary. And they had uh, they knew about performers and uh, uh, phenomena that I just don't know anything about. But just and, to play devil's advocate yeah. for a minute, you're a journalist, you're a reporter, yeah, you're not yeah. supposed to know everything. You're supposed I, to talk to people who do know that's things. That's right. I, you're, you're right. And I could bone up on something and I can watch videos and I can uh, read up and, and uh, lean on younger staffers for support. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I didn't feel, um, I, I haven't felt for the past couple of years that, uh, that, I, uh, that I understand the country culturally the way I once thought I did. Politically, I, I, you know, I, I, I feel pretty sharp about it. We'll, we'll come to politics in a minute, yeah. but stay on culture. Is, yeah. is it that you don't like where the culture is going? I don't even like. I mean, I don't. I mean, and I'm saying this as the father of a singer-songwriter. Hip-hop culture is beyond me. I just don't, uh, I, I don't quite get it. And I was, I was somebody who was a, uh, you know, a top 40 disc jockey in college as much as a newscaster. I don't, I'm not coming at this from, from, uh, only from the uh, the perspective of high culture, I just don't, you know, I, I don't quite uh, 
quite get what it is that uh, right. I, was, I was at a wedding recently at which a young couple was getting married and and uh, most of the music uh, drew all of the younger people to the stage to dance and at some point somebody put uh, the Jackson 5 and I want you back on it everybody came out and it was sort of you know <laughs> some point that, that we all everybody in the room had that in common but until that point I just I, I, did, I didn't have any sense of what was going on go to the politics question for yeah. a minute because I understand why you would want to get out on top which you've done uh, with all your faculties and your robustness. Mm-hmm. By the way, I don't associate the word robust with Robert Siegel, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go with this. Erudite, thoughtful, right. uh, but... Uh, well, I'll, ambulatory. I'll go with ambulatory. Ambulatory. Okay, let's settle on ambulatory. It's a more modest level of robustness. Right. Can walk. Right. Uh, but, uh, but the political moment must be... It must be awfully hard for you to walk away from this unusual period in American history. In theory, it should be, <laughs> and I think I would have said that. So far, I, I can't say that I'm. I want to point out that so far is that I'm feeling the pain. Twenty-four hours. That's but, all. That's right. Maybe yeah. maybe it'll feel different in a while. I worked at NPR for all those years in a, in a place that's dense with talent, and I leave those I leave those concerns to to my very able colleagues. I, I find that. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to a few days of not thinking about Donald Trump. You know, that would be that would be kind of nice. Uh, you started. Uh, I mean, you started in journalism in college, and you started in in in, journal, in journalism at a fraught time, similarly yeah. fraught time, the late '60s. And I remember you saying once uh, that you were relieved to have been a college journalist covering campus uprisings because you didn't want to participate. Yeah, yeah. In 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 the tumult, I'm wondering what you think about. Uh, the media today, uh, the desire or the decision by a lot of media outlets to more or less join the, quote, resistance. I I have to assume that this is not something that would have sat well with you had your colleagues said, let's be more activist. No, it would not have sat. I, I can't imagine. My, well, some of my most junior young colleagues might have might have thought or said such a thing, but I can't imagine many others saying that. Uh Look, I think the institutions of a democratic society are very important. Uh, a, a free press is one of them. Independent broadcasting is is one of them. And in the tumult of, of of the Trump presidency, I think it would be disastrous if if all institutions decided that uh, tradition and and history don't don't matter anymore. We have to join in this in this uh, resistance. Uh, we, we we wouldn't have the strong institution standing at the end of that. And there will be an end of this period. You know, this is not... Um, You're not a pessimist about the inevitable decline? Uh, <laughs> well, I No, I don't think... I, I, I'm, I'm not a pessimist about the inevitable decline. I think that... Um, is that because you went through the 60s? Maybe. I, you know, I, I agreed. I was once interviewing uh, Biden on his, uh, when, as he was wrapping up his term, and I agreed with him absolutely. 1968, this country was much more divided than it was in 2016, or I would extend it now to 2017. Uh, we were having not just deep political, not just deep cultural divisions, riots in, 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 in the streets. Uh, George Wallace uh, was running, uh, polling double digits for the presidency, not as, you know, not with, with uh, what do they say, with dog whistles. I mean, being essentially an, an anti-integrationist uh, or, or a back to segregationist, uh, whatever we would say. Uh, Richard Nixon um, was taking advantage of this to get elected. Uh, something, the, the, the old systems that had uh, kept people 
civil and and um, well behaved in politics were falling away in some way that we can't uh, we weren't we weren't able to describe then and there. So I I thought those days were were much much more uh, divisive and and scary. So far, I don't think that uh, the Trump administration has done to any journalist or news organization what Richard Nixon uh, did to my old colleague Dan Shore when when they started a you know an FBI investigation of him uh, that's not you know that's a, a fairly low bar for for grading for grading an administration but um so far i i i, I don't feel that um that every administration from here on in is going to be um, Intent on insulting everyone in sight and uh, challenging every news report as a lie and uh, whatever. And it, I, I think that um, uh, I don't think that's what's it's whatever, whatever is popular about this presidency among some people. It's not that stuff. It, so, what was the impulse uh, in the '60s that kept you on the sidelines, made you an observer and not a participant? And 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 made you happy. Yeah. Made you being an observer for the last forty plus years in radio. I, I wasn't much of an activist. In high school, I did join the local uh, chapter of the Friends of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and took part in uh, food drives in, in Manhattan to send down to people in Mississippi. You weren't building bombs in Greenwich Village basements. I, I, no. Uh, I, I didn't. Uh, I remember I, I, I sort of dropped out of the SNCC business when there was some big civil rights demonstration that included people whom I did not agree with at all. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't built for marching if it meant uh, marching with uh, people whom I only agreed with about one thing uh, and, and thought they were odious in other respects. So I, I, I was not a college activist. Um, I think it would have been for me a very out of character to go sit in a building and away to rest. Right. By the way, how's my interviewing technique so far? It's great, Jeff. It's really terrific. Really? Yes. I think you're just saying <laughs> very, that because it's my show. It's very probing. It's quite nerve wracking <laughs> because uh, because you're very good at interviewing, and I wanted to talk to you about interviewing a little bit, yeah. uh, just as a trade craft. Well, first, let, let me do yeah. it because I'm a negative person. Let me start with the <laughs> negative. Yeah. Uh, can you can you can you remember an interview that you did uh, on All Things Considered that you just thought this is a terrible interview? Oh, I mean, I've uh, there have been many, and I've and I've put them out of uh, you know I I, I wouldn't be. Well, I'm able trying to, to dredge to up bad one. memories, yeah. But, but um, uh, you know, we have to remember about about All Things Considered that uh, they are very recorded and edited programs, so that an interview that I uh, that I typically do that you hear on the air is uh, it might be six minutes of that that might be quite long cut out of 25 minutes in the studio or if things were really going badly out of 35 40 minutes in the but you do studio. you did live i mean i've been we on did your live, show live. Yes, we yeah. have done live interviews uh but that was a sign of our enormous confidence in you jeff that you were you were housebroken as a guest on the program and <laughs> obviously and that uh, you would not ru run had, on forever i had gone through your re-education program <laughs> yeah uh, so um you know yes lots of interviews that uh the, as as I think a lot of interviewers know, the one of the worst um, uh, one of the worst tip offs is when the guest is either mentioning your name or the title of his or her book in every answer. That that person has been coached by someone to do that, and uh, your challenge is to try to. That's a good point, Robert. That's right. <laughs> That's right, Jeff. <laughs> uh, 
politicians. Yeah. Very, very terrible, hard. Terrible. What, terrible. Are, what are the secrets to success in interviewing I, a politician? I, I'm not sure I know. I mean, it, it's... Well, it's, if you don't know, then nobody knows. No, so I'm, try harder. Uh, well, you know, you have to be armed in there. You have to anticipate what the obvious answers are going to be and be armed with the rebuttals to those answers so that you're there pretty quickly after uh, after the politician has has said what he has to say because they'll try to get it on the air no matter what you do. There's a lot of criticism of reporters in the Trump era who the criticism goes turn on their tape recorders in front of the president and let him go. Yeah. Uh, talk about the role of the interviewer, the reporter in these circumstances. There's a it's I know what side of this debate I'm on, but I'm curious to 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 know if you've thought about this criticism that a lot of people have been getting. Uh I think we're there at, at some level as Truth Squad members. You know, we sh- if, if we're hearing outright falsehoods uh, go by, while there's something delectable about saying, "Whoa, this guy just got uh, you know he he got a whopper out of the president in in that interview." Uh, it's 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 actually important for people listening to the interview who are not journalists who are not keeping score on everything that politicians are saying uh, to be prepared to say. But that's you know, but that's not you. You said the exact opposite on here. Let's go back to September when you when you said this. Or uh, isn't that exactly what uh, what this Democratic president said about something like that? I think it's important uh, for in a presidential interview. I'd imagine I haven't done that many of them uh, to to be prepared with the. With the um, the rebuttal questions, and um, I as I, I once interviewed uh, Obama uh, in a very in a tight squeeze. We had very little time, and he was talking about how in healthcare it was a healthcare interview that people uh, would. Uh, I was questioning about the the limited uh, degree of cost uh, cost controls in the Affordable Care Act that they hadn't done much, as I, I claimed in a question, to bring down uh, the cost of medical care. And he said, well, people are not going to just want to have uh, medical tests that they don't need so that they, they won't have them. And he went on further. And I remember uh, interrupting rather rudely to, to raise the case of, ma- of uh, mammography. Uh, at that point, new guidelines had just come out saying uh, you, you shouldn't get a mammogram. Uh, that often, and people protested and said, uh, you know, uh, they want to take away protection. And uh, and I remember feeling we're sitting in the Oval Office. It's it's kind of hard to interrupt the president of the United States. He did not like to be interrupted. I don't think he showed any pleasure at that moment. He said, "Well, that was the way that was rolled out." Uh, and uh, and this is not a president whom I whose whose intelligence I I would question at all. Uh, but. Um, uh, I I think you have to go in there knowing your stuff and be prepared to to challenge what's being said to you. Um, I don't think, uh, and and it's not easy. I've I've great respect for people who do it quite well. Who do you think does it well? Uh, I think well, uh, first of all, Russert used to do it very well. Let me let me you know, put in a a, a post mortem praise for uh, for Tim Russert. Um, I think that um, uh, Dickerson. Uh, is 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 a very good interviewer, no nonsense, well prepared interviewer, and I um, uh, I admire his talent at, at at doing that. I'm losing CNN and in, in my head right now as I'm talking to you. You know, uh, 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 Jake, Jake, yeah, Jake. I think Tapper does does a very tough job and a good job. Go to the flip side of my question. Yeah. Um, talk about the interviews you've enjoyed doing the most and why. 
I've enjoyed doing uh, lots of interviews, interviews with creative people, uh, people who, who write, people who act, people who make movies and, and direct for the theater. Uh, I, um, I find their stories about how they came to do what they're doing and uh, how they learn, how they approach their, uh, their craft and their work is, you know, it's, uh, they're, they're fascinating. I always enjoyed interviewing very old people. I felt that they had no longer any incentive to lie about anything. And uh, those could be very honest, interesting, revealing interviews. I just, I remember those interviews a lot, a lot better than them. Um, what uh, what a particular member of Congress said about uh, what his committee was likely to do the next. Let me go back to your career a bit. Why radio? I, I got involved in radio in college, and uh, I liked doing it. But most of your friends were joining the Columbia Spectator. I didn't type well enough, I thought, to be to work for the Spectator. I I, I was going to do uh, some extracurricular activity because I was commuting to college, and someone had said, "Do something." There's the headline, by the way. Yeah, Siegel went to NPR because he couldn't type. Because <laughs> I couldn't type. I got a, I got a little news nugget out of this. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then at various times, it occurred to me I'd better get real about this. Uh, you know, there just aren't uh, good, interesting jobs in radio here. I guess I I guess I should. Uh, do television. I should do something in television. So I went to journalism school for that purpose. And um, I was totally turned off by television. I mean, I, I, I thought it was, uh, I was amazed by anyone who could get any serious work done in television because of the challenges of the, of the medium. It's a picture medium. Uh, radio, on the other hand, I was kind of reaffirmed in my, in my love of radio that uh, there it was me and a Sony cassette machine, uh, not me and a team of people who who would go out with a 16-millimeter camera. So uh, I, I, I hung around, and when a, when a radio station opened up doing news and talk, I, I went to work there. Is that when they forced you to change your name? They, uh, yes, I was. I was um, what was up with that? Well, it was something to the effect of um, that while the owner of the station, uh, Mr. Beck, is himself of the Hebraic, <laughs> we don't like to have names that are going to offend anybody. And you were, and you were Bob. I was. I was Bob. Uh, Hard to picture. No, you know, what happened is if you're – maybe you had this with being Jeff. I don't know. I was raised always being called Robert. Uh, I was always Robert in my family or Rob. Um, and and then at some point, you know, uh, in my teenage years, it was a choice. I would either accept the fact that everyone I met addressed me as Bob or I'd have to become the guy who says, please don't call me Bob, call me Robert. Uh, yeah. And uh, that seemed like a pain in the neck. So so I succumbed to peer pressure. And uh, Right. But you recovered it. I recovered it at a very specific moment. When the Senate debated the Panama Canal Treaties, NPR had supposedly committed to carrying this debate gavel to gavel, which um, mm. was the idea that Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia had. Linda Wertheimer sat in the gallery overlooking the Senate floor. And I sat at home at the studio doing the, the quorum calls and the, the breaks in between the, uh, the debate. And I figured that right now, you know, the number of people who will hear me say my name when we begin this broadcast will be a significant multiple of all the people who have ever heard me say my name before. So it's now or never. And uh, I, I reclaimed made, my name as Robert Siegel. I became Robert Siegel. <laughs> when, did you, um, when did you first start sounding like Robert Siegel? I, you know, I mean, when you were a kid, were yeah, you? No, uh, <laughs> no. Were you playing stickball and uh, giving I, running commentary in a Robert Siegel no, voice? No, I was playing. Well, we actually played more punch ball than stickball where I came from. Right? But still, the Spaulding was the same, 
in the end of my uh, the last couple of weeks at NPR, a very good producer uh, named Melissa Gray, uh, who is quite gifted and very funny, was assigned the job that I I, I dubbed being my personal obituarist, uh, in that she would she would prepare pieces about what I had done at, at NPR, it. and so she went listening through to stuff that <laughs> I'd like, done. It's like watching your eulogy exactly, get written, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um, from a practical perspective, you might as well be involved in your eulogy writing, <laughs> well, right? That's why not? Why not? And and what I figured out from listening to all of the old things that uh, that Melissa dredged up was that I sound today pretty much the way I have sounded for the past 16 years or something like that. Um, before that, I sound very different. What was the, what, what caused the shift and what was it like before? Describe it. Well, for well before I, I sounded uh, much tighter and uh, more nasal and uh, more, uh, I think, more imitative. Urgent? Yeah, yeah. Uh, FME? Kind of, I mean. Not FME. Not I think FME. More AME. AME. That's um, what I meant. And um, um, we did. At I don't the, know if that thing. I don't know if that description means anything to people under forty. No, no, no. AM my, or FM. My 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 daughters who who sort of straddled that that age mark uh, for them. Uh, my listening to ball games on AM radio is about as bizarre as it was to me that That's my like father had a short wave. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. It's totally. He's so. painting his cave again. <laughs> right, right. It's, it makes no sense to people under a certain age. Right. Do you think a soothing voice makes people you're interviewing tell you more? I don't know. It's a good. It's a good question. I. I, I mean, it. Uh, when I've been out in the field as a reporter interviewing people, I think there's a lot of bedside manner that goes into those conversations. And when people talk about their lives, maybe it is. Certainly, if I, if I started barking at them, you know, and uh, announcing at them like somebody on the radio. Uh, that would be stealing my technique. <laughs> the, the barking part. Well, I think, I, I you know, I've. What, one one thing I come away from from all these decades is one of the major one of the major forces it seems of, of modern history is for things becoming less formal. Uh, everything becomes whatever whatever we thought was normal thirty years ago is feels stiff, you know, by now. And whatever we're doing now, God only knows what people will sound like in another thirty years. But uh, I think there you know there are older broadcasters who who uh, can address people uh, in their in their work the way they the way they will address the camera, which is right. We'll be back with more of Robert Siegel after the break. Talk about, just for a minute, um, NPR. I want to talk about um, uh, one unpleasant bit and then a couple of pleasant bits. The unpleasant bit, uh, well, it's not unique to NPR, obviously. It's this it's this uh, revolution in gender relations um and uh the exposure of some people even at npr uh, who were behaving in ways unacceptable uh to to their colleagues uh one of the things that surprised me is that uh while it didn't come as a shock that the Weinstein company would have this problem, I have a particular, perhaps idealized image of NPR, um, where I'm surprised any time that this emerges in, uh, this problem emerges in public radio, but we've seen it over and over again in the last few months. Can you 
diagnose this? Uh, well, for, first, I think I may have had the same idealized uh, view of NPR that you had, uh, mine from inside. When when we had an all staff meeting uh, after uh, our top uh, editor was uh, was dispatched for uh, for misbehavior, um, I was I, I was surprised by the intensity of the anger and the resentment of. Uh, of especially young women uh, on the staff of NPR. Uh, and um, uh, for not having been protected, for people have not acted, uh, for people not having acted sooner. And I, I was surprised by the, uh, by the degree of, uh, of anger and distress. So um, I've had to think about it since. First of all, we're not immune to this, to the, the, the same things that are happening elsewhere. I, 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 Were you unaware of this as a? I as a you know, I was told by a, 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 a woman colleague who's very close friend. You know that there was a complaint against uh, our senior uh, news editor. Uh, I assumed, uh, I guess wrongly, uh, that um, the complaint would be acted on. Uh, someone would read him the riot act, and there'd be uh, apologies and uh, let's get on with it and. Uh, no more such behavior. Talking about Mike Oreskes. Mike Oreskes, yeah, was doing a very good job as uh, the senior vice president in, in, uh, of, of news, I guess, was the title. And uh, two women whom he had interviewed uh, or had interviewed for jobs with him or about their jobs with him back in his days at the New York Times came to NPR uh, to complain about his past behavior. Um, and uh, which, of course, raises this odd question of, well, we we were two employers down the road from this. Uh, that is, he had gone from the New York Times to the Associated Press and then to us. I guess people were discreet. You 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 asked me earlier about this time in the news, and is this a time when you want to stop? Meaning, uh, the Trump administration is uh, is embroiled in uh, allegations of collusion with the Russians during the campaign. The other running story of the past several weeks has been this. Uh, you know who's the uh, the the awful guy of the of the week whom we'll right. now hear a couple of stories about and um while i guess there's some justice to it and it it's it strikes closer to home uh, oddly than uh, than the the high politics of the country it's a very i find it a very unpleasant story uh, it's been a pretty upsetting time and um i hope that uh, you know men are uh, you know are are uh, are afraid of the consequences of their misbehaving. I can't, I mean, I, I, I do think that um, there will be men who have impulses, uh, and uh, so long as people enjoy power at the workplace, they may try to abuse it. So I, I, I can't, I, I don't hope for a uh, complete rebirth of human goodness and kindness, but rather of restraints against bad behavior and feeling that there'll be some, right. some penalty for doing wrong. Right. It's very Jewish of me to say that, I think. Bob Charles has no views on that, <laughs> obviously, yeah. uh, from an outside perspective. Yeah. The uh, go to the good, the good bits. Yeah. Um, and and this is hard for you in one sense because I believe, as do others, that uh, you were built by NPR, but you also helped build NPR in some in some real ways. I, I just want you to frame out NPR's role in journalism and in society today compared to forty years ago. I mean, one of the astonishing things is about NPR is that we think often of the nightly newscasts uh, or the cable news shows uh, as as driving the national conversation. All things considered, as more listeners uh, than 
nearly all television news shows have have viewers. I think NPR combined, yeah. certainly morning and night, uh, is is an extraordinary presence. But it has it's a lower key presence in a kind of way. Uh- well, its influence has grown enormously. Uh, when I went to work at NPR at the end of 1976, there were probably a couple of dozen people at, at, at NPR News, uh, and uh, all but that's amazing. Yeah, all but one of them worked in Washington. Uh, we had a reporter in New York. Uh, that was about it. Uh, we had ten reporters, all told, I think. Uh, and uh, I was one of the. I was originally a newscaster, but. We were growing so rapidly that every six months my job would change, and I was moved up to being an editor. So I, uh, I and a very gifted guy named Robert Krolwich uh, edited the ten reporters that we had, or whatever. And we didn't even we were moving into into a, a vacant space. Radio had been killed off by television, uh, and all the companies that owned the big radio stations and big radio networks also owned big television properties and decided at some point, even when, you know, 98% of Americans would tune into the radio every day, uh, decided that the future uh, was in television and that uh, radio could more efficiently be reduced to a single program format uh, operation uh, that would uh, uh, play all top 40 music or all uh, uh, middle of the road music or maybe all news, maybe all news. We had a tremendous technological advantage uh, as well. Uh, at the uh, end of the Second World War, FM radio uh, became available to the public. It was a new invention. There was a, uh, a rule that uh, the stations wanted lobbying for, which was to pass a law that would make uh, – it's a strange law. It would make an FM radio standard equipment rather than optional in a car. Mm. This is 1978, I think. Uh, it, it didn't – there was no such law ever passed, but it became practice after a while. Until that time, most cars didn't have FM radios. Uh, and I'd say for the first 30 years or so of NPR's life, the technological landscape tilted our way radically because uh, there was still a tremendous amount of radio listening, but it was moving every year more and more from AM to FM. Then I think there came a time when we benefited once again from from a bad decision, which was that uh, in exchange essentially for being deregulated, uh, you know, everyone could say, well, look, NPR, you know, I mean, people will find lots of news on the air. It's on NPR. Don't don't hold us to any high standard to uh, uh, to do original journalism uh, on, on, on the radio. It was it was it's been a completely organic experience. That is, when, when I went to work there in 76. People did say that there was going to be a morning program started down the road at some point, but no one ever had this plan of what it is we were going to become. We weren't um, we weren't conceived of as a grown up. We were always this this child growing up. Uh, and uh, by nine eleven, I remember realizing that uh, we had more full time foreign correspondents than the television networks did. Right. Uh, we That's were, when you really moved toward indispensability. You I think? think, yeah. When you're suddenly being attacked by strange groups uh, hiding out in the mountains of Afghanistan, uh, you, you're not going to be able to just ask your next door neighbor, what's, you know, what's with this? You need some kind of authority that knows something about this to talk to you about such things. Right. We came back into history then at a moment yeah. and that, that required yeah. the services of NPR. The summer was all about – the summer of, uh, before 9-11 was all about shark attacks and uh, the death of, a, of an intern on Capitol Hill in Washington. <laughs> These were the, the stories that – People were obsessing over. Where do you think it goes? Is it just, is everything just going to be a podcast soon? 
<laughs> God willing. So, so, God willing. Uh, I, I, I think that we're turning into a, a kind of an audio-associated press. Uh, that is, um, w- when I first came to NPR, I mean, I can tell you these, you know, how small NPR in Washington was. But if you looked at how many public radio stations out there could assign a reporter to a story and have a story done uh, for for the network that day, the number we could we could count on our fingers, and maybe maybe not need the second hand. Uh, today, I mean, there are lots of stations out there that are the biggest broadcast newsroom in their city, uh, and that have really good reporters, and that also have very good uh, relations with the with the good newspaper reporters uh, wh- where they are. And our role as a national system of uh, of news gathering is really growing. So I think that uh, I think that's there in the future. Uh, podcasting, you know, it's a, it's very interesting. the The idea of uh, radio has always been well, we'll put a program on our our biggest program. We'll put it on a time when we know the most people are turning on their radios. Morning and, and afternoon drive, we would have said drive time. I, I still, I enjoy the notion of the same thing being on the air for people uh, all across the country and, right. and hearing that at the same time. There's still that 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 sense of community about it, and uh, the uh, the podcast is obviously a more individualistic uh, thing. It's saying here, you know, you 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 make your own decision when you want to listen to this and when you want to fast forward or or uh, turn off this boring guest that Jeff just, has on you. Just do me a yeah. favor and say the words uh yeah. I'm Robert Siegel and this is the Atlantic Interview. I'm Robert Siegel and this is the Atlantic Interview. So you could have my job. <laughs> I think you just I've I think cr- I think I cracked the code right I there. I think huh? I think you have yeah. a retirement plan. I think, so. I think you have a post retirement plan. Yeah, you know, you're 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 free to come here and have a podcast. Yeah. What is the next step? You're certainly not uh, retiring per se. Well, I mean, I, I don't. I'm, I'm right now. I'm, I'm living uh, purposely uh, without purpose or plan. You know, I'm, I'm just. I, I it really has been since I was. You're about so zen. Twenty. Well, when I was about twenty-two, and didn't know what was going to happen. I remember several months, just, just uh, not working and living, writing, trying to write, but, uh, but not working. And uh, that's the only period of my life since I was about 15 that I experienced that. And uh, now You're not I've, suggesting that you just want to enjoy yourself well, for a for, while. Well, I want to I try this. I want to try this first and see what that <laughs> feels like and, uh, and see what, uh, what it feels good to do. Yep. When, when, a person, when a person of power and influence, and millions of people know your voice. They don't know your face necessarily, yeah. but they know your voice. When, when a person of influence retires, does that person fear irrelevance as much as they fear simply the aging process i don't know that i i don't know that i fear irrelevance i think there's something special about retiring from the kind of job that i've been doing which is that as you say people don't know me they know my voice uh uh, the relationship of a radio listener to the people whom they hear every day is a very uh, special uh close relationship and you know, we always we always have been. I think the BBC was the first to say back in the who knows when. Listen to radio; the pictures are better, uh, meaning they're they're in your head. So uh, people people have their own uh, perception of me. And retirement from a broadcasting job, I think, is a little different uh, from retirement. I think it's different from retirement from other kinds of work because it's like um, slipping out of a of a skin uh, that. Uh, has never been entirely me. It's 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 been a, a, a combination of me and people's 
whatever meaning they've attached to listening to me on the right. radio. So, so I don't. Um, uh, I <laughs> that that you know that character that the 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 persona that uh, I am as a host of a radio program that 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 meant something to people. That I that is is I'm shedding and and I cease to be. But so when you go to Safeway a year from now, you'll be yeah. just as anonymous as you were <laughs> a year ago. Absolutely, absolutely. So that makes it easier. Now I've seen you know I I know television people when I've walked down the street and you know people's heads turn. You can you can see them being recognized by everyone. I've I've always enjoyed uh, people in radio enjoy a certain amount of anonymity, but I think that the separation from being the the uh, afternoon voice of of uh, public radio is, I suspect, a little different from from many people's retirement. In that uh, there's a there's just a slight dis- there's a distance uh, between me and um, the and and saying uh, you know this is all things considered from NPR News uh, several times. But admit it when you go into yeah. a store and you do open your mouth. The kind of the game's up a little bit, no? It depends what store. It depends what what <laughs> depends what level of the NPR store, about. for instance. <laughs> the NPR store, they know me very well. They, they sell socks with my name on them. Uh, but um, no, I, I, it's, it's, I, I think it must be different from. Oh, I, I assume that when the when the local general practitioner retires and ceases to be a you know a the person you see for healing, there's a separation between profession and and identity, but. Uh, in this case, there's something imagined about the uh, the identity that I that I that I have in people's minds that uh, I'm just I'm I'm sort of half responsible for. They're also responsible for it. So I I I, I find the separation uh, for me right now. I mean, you're talking to me on day one of of, of my retirement, but uh, I, I find it a, a little you know, kind of healthy. I mean, I I, I understand that. Um, that I won't have the same relationship to strangers that, that I used to have. To, but, uh, to the extent that people have ever said to you, oh, I didn't picture you looking this way. What do they picture you looking like? Six five? Know, you know, I've had, I've had this joke for, for decades where I, I talk to people at station gatherings, and uh, I always have this uh, the same shtick where I'll say, uh, you know, we, we know there are always millions of people out there listening, but uh, when we do the program, we just look at the engineer or the director, so... Uh, it's nice to it's nice to actually see the the people in the audience, and then I'll pause and say, uh, and I'm always struck when I say this that you don't look anything like what I thought you would look like, uh, um, uh, and then I'd just say I thought you'd all be taller and have more hair, uh, and uh, usually at the end of every such evening, some someone would come up to me at the end and say. You know, it's funny because you don't look like what I thought you would look like. <laughs> somebody doesn't get the joke. <laughs> somebody that would, no, somebody, somebody always doesn't, doesn't get the but joke. <laughs> as I've told all of my colleagues, that joke is also retiring now in 2018. So. <laughs> well, I wish it a happy retirement. Thank you very much. Robert Siegel. Jeff Goldberg. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank, thank you, you very much. much. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. I said Groucho Marx. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Robert Siegel, thank you so much. You're welcome. The Atlantic Interview is produced by Diana Douglas. Wait, that's my almost... I almost sounded like Robert Siegel. Back announced, take two. (laughs) (laughs) The Atlantic Interview is produced by Diana Douglas and Kevin Townsend with production help from Kim Lau. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe and rate us. 
If you don't like it and you're still listening, we'll have another podcast for you to dislike next week. He's Jeffrey Goldberg, Editor-in-Chief. See you next week.